From Chicago, welcome to 3 Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. You know, the conventional way is to reference something out of MMPDS, which is the handbook of all, you know, uh, source data from a publicly available specification. And so if you if you look in MMPDS, there's a methodology for how you determine these values, these minimum design values. Um, and it's statistical methods. It's a T90 or T99 value. Um, the problem is that when you look at how um, the definitions are assigned, what's a heat, what's a lot, um, how many samples do you have to take, orientation dependencies. None of that was spelled out then, and I don't even think it's spelled out now. That was Craig Bryce. Craig is a professor of practice in mechanical engineering at Colorado School of Mines. He is currently the director of the Advanced Manufacturing Program, which focuses on undergraduate and graduate education in additive manufacturing and other advanced manufacturing techniques. He is also involved in additive manufacturing research with the Alliance for the Development of Additive Processing Technologies, or the ADAPT Center and serves as the director of the ADAPT Consortium. Dr. Bryce has been working in additive manufacturing for over 20 years, beginning with the first commercially available AM system sold by Optimec in 1998. He has spent his entire professional career working in additive manufacturing with time spent at Lockheed Martin Aeronautics Advanced Development Programs, Skunk Works, Lockheed Martin Space Advanced Technology Center, and NASA Langley Research. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. All right, Craig, thank you so much for joining the show today. I'm excited for the conversation. Um, let's start where kind of I do with uh, all my guests, or most recently, at least. Um, kind of tell me about kind of life early on. Where, you, where were you from? Where you kind of grew up? Kind of what got you down the... Uh, the path of, of maybe engineering kind of in those early days? Okay, sure. Um, yeah, so I, I grew up in the Midwest, um, was born in Iowa, moved around a couple of times in Iowa before I moved to Missouri, um, southwest part of the state, around 11 years old. So I kind of claim that as my home because um, that was where my formative years took place. Um, you know, in terms of my interest in, in, in science and in engineering, it's hard to pin down when that, when that took place. Um, I was always good at math and science. Um, I didn't really know where that was going to lead me. Um, because I lived in Missouri, I applied to what was then the University of Missouri at Rolla, which is now the Missouri University of Science and Technology. Um, again, thinking I wanted to be an engineer, but not really knowing um, what type of engineer. In fact, I like to tell people that uh, my freshman year, I was undecided. And um, probably every two weeks, I was a different type of engineer. Um, we had a, a course that we as freshmen went to and we hopped around departments and saw what they did and got to talk to faculty and other students. And so I was changing my mind on a weekly basis. And um, I, I kind of, the interesting, um, I guess, shift in my, in my mindset was one of those department visits, uh, we toured the metallurgical engineering department and they had all these little samples of metal laid out on the table. 
and you you had a little survey that you had to do. You, just by picking them up and visually looking at them and, and feeling them, you were supposed to guess which one they were. And there were density differences and luster differences. And I I won. I got the I got them all. I don't know if I got them all right, but I I beat everybody else in my tour group. And so I got a little special gift or something. And I'm not sure if that's what keyed me into uh, taking the path of metallurgical engineering, but that's a story I like to tell. So um, that was how I ended up at least getting my start in metals. Um, Now, when I, uh, through kind of serendipity, I suppose, um, I was intending to go to to grad school right after my bachelor's degree. And I applied to three schools. Um, And I visited two of the three schools that I'd applied to and kind of struck out. I didn't really connect. I didn't connect with any particular faculty member. Um, And so I went back to Missouri Rala and I kind of, I guess, complained to one of my my, uh, professors there who was kind of my unofficial advisor. And his advisor in grad school was at Ohio State. Um, And he reached out to him and suggested I get in touch and contact him. And and that was uh, Professor Hamish Hamish Frazier. So um, hadn't even really applied, wasn't on my radar. I thought I'd give it a shot. Uh, Hamish invited me out. Um, I, I've, I guess I fell in love with it. Um, and, and again, through kind of a serendipitous connection, um, when I showed up for, to start my master's degree was just about the same time, the very first serial number 001 Optimec lens machine, uh, got delivered to Ohio state to sit in Hamish's lab. Um, so I got, you know, was lucky enough to be hands-on and working with the first commercially available metal 3D printer um, that was out there. And so that that was where my career in additive started, and I, I haven't looked back. So did you like working with your hands? Was that always something that you wanted to do as part of your kind of engineering uh, pursuits? You know, it's, it's funny because I, I now have a teenager who's considering engineering as a career, and I look and I think, well, he's not really a hands-on. He's not a tinker. We have this assumption that as an engineer, you should be taking apart your radio and putting things back together. And I, I was never really that way either. Um, and I, I did like the hands-on component to it of, of working with this first 3D printer at, at Ohio State. On the other hand, um, there were a lot of frustrations, right? It was a brand new machine. Um, the documentation wasn't a hundred percent, um, things broke all the time. I didn't know anything about lasers. I didn't know anything in hindsight about safety in terms of metal powders and all of these things that I look back on and think, holy cow, it's amazing. I didn't, you know, fry my eyes or, or do something like burn down the building. Um, so I, I did enjoy that hands-on component, even though oftentimes it was frustrating. So that was, so was that a master's or was that also kind of, were you kind of gone into PhD as well? Well, I I went in kind of undecided. I wasn't really sure how I, how long I wanted to stay. And the deciding factor was um, my project was funded through a grant from Lockheed Martin. 
Um, so Lockheed Martin had uh, provided a, a grant to fund a student to Hamish Fraser. He put me on that project. Um, as part of that project, I, um, I did an academic year in Columbus, and then I went to Fort Worth, Texas, um, to the Lockheed Martin facility there, where they had just spun up um, probably one of the first large industrial R&D labs in metal 3D printing that, that I know of. Um, and I was kind of blown away by it. It was phenomenal. The people, um, you know, the, the excitement behind it, we were, you know, first to the party uh, on the lunatic fringe. It was, it was an exciting time. And so I went back to school and of course I was going to finish up. Um, and, and it was kind of at that point that I decided I can't delay this. I can't delay getting out there and getting into industry and doing some work. So um, I chose to leave with a master's degree. Um, I eventually did get a PhD while I was working, um, but I, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to, to not jump on that new opportunity um, at Lockheed Martin. And so what is it like to work in one of the, I mean, Lockheed's a big company, right? A lot of different focus areas, a lot of different groups and a lot of different kind of industrial focuses. So was this lab specifically focused on developing 3D printing as a technology or qualifying materials so that it could kind of branch out or kind of what, what was the, your, your first kind of role or kind of within that, that group there to, to achieve kind of 3D printing to what end within, in, in the organization? Right. So, um, interestingly enough, the, the, the president of that particular business unit was a champion. Um, and so we, we had kind of high level cover, um, to do interesting things, right. It was, it was at the highest levels. Um, the, the president of that business unit had seen, um, so we had some stereolithography equipment that was used to make um, wind tunnel models or, or just shapes, you know, demonstration articles. And uh, he had seen that. And um, what he had told the, the guy who hired me in, Brian Rosenberger, um, he had told him, I want you to go pour me an airplane because he was thinking, you know, stereolithography, big vat of goo, and you, you know, you lift an, an object out of it. And so, you know, it's way more complicated with metals, uh, but we, we always um, kind of hung on to that tagline, pour an airplane, that was the concept. Um, so early on, it was, it was quite unusual because um, while most people were thinking, most people who were just getting into additive were thinking, what parts can I replace? I want to do a one-to-one -one part replacement, make this out of that and not really change anything. Just do it by a different method. Our, our guidance was don't bother with that. We're going to jump right over that. And I want you to make, you know, an entire airplane. And, and of course that's fanciful. And it, it, it was even today um, fanciful and well beyond what, what additive is capable of. But it was nice to have that longer term vision not be bogged down by, you know, make this little widget and incrementally get there. So we could kind of swing for the fence. And I was the metallurgist on the team. We had um, uh, the, the guy who started the project. He had a background in conceptual design and, 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 and airplanes. 
We had a chemical engineer, we had an electrical engineer, we had a hands-on technician, um, we had a computer software guy. So it was a really cool group to work in. And we were all kind of tackling individual problems. And I mean, there were plenty of problems to work and there still are plenty of problems to work. Um, so it was, it was an exciting time for sure. And so how did your role at, I guess, kind of, can you speak about kind of that, the, the evolution of, of, uh, of that project or kind of your career within in Lockheed and kind of where, where that, we know where it started, kind of where did that lead in terms of um, different technologies? Did you, did, did you say you started with kind of Optimic type systems as well, and then kind of branch continued to, to explore that, that path? Yeah. So the, the system that they had installed there was, it was blown powder DED directed energy deposition um, on the scale of that kind of Optimec, you know, one millimeter resolution capability. Um, but that system was on the end of a six axis robot arm inside of a giant tank um, so that we could do complex shape off axis path planning. So instead of two dimensional stack slices, we could slice in any orientation. That was a really cool thing we were doing even back then. Um, it didn't take long for us to realize that making parts at that length scale, there wasn't many airplane parts that were going to be valuable at that length scale. So um, we started looking at other techniques and we branched out. Um, we were the first to look at electron beam DED. Um, we went and knocked on Siaki's door in Chicago and, um, and got them interested in doing some large scale DED for us. Um, and they're still doing it. They're selling machines today. And, and um, you know, so we, we recognized early on, we needed higher deposition rates. We needed to really throw a lot of material down, um, knowing that we were going to sacrifice resolution, but we could come back and machine it. So you have to find kind of the sweet spot of the cost to add plus the cost to subtract and where do those curves intersect. Um, eventually that led to, you know, what, we, we were an R&D lab, but eventually we had to show we were impacting a platform. And that platform happened to be F-35. Um, F-35 is one of the few, if not only, um, defense platforms that has a built-in kind of affordability metric to it. You know, so you couldn't just, it, it couldn't just be cost what it cost. It had to be performance, but consider cost as a, as a factor. And so, our project was an affordability initiative to um, swap out titanium dye forgings with electron beam DED parts. And these are big parts, you know, as big as a table. Um, and that was a very eye-opening ex experience for me because I was, I was an R&D guy. And now I was in the world of um, process specifications and qualification and learning about how th something goes from the lab and makes it onto a platform, which is, you know, now is kind of what, what I like to focus on in my work and my current job, because it, it's a huge burden and it's a huge hurdle. And if we don't, if we're not working to clear that hurdle, it's gonna, it's gonna really be limiting. Um, anyway, kind of to wrap up that story, we, we went through an entire qualification program that was funded by F-35 and overseen by people from the program office um, at the Air Force and um, collected a tremendous amount of data, um, 
sorted through all the variability, both in terms of the material, the wire that we source and the samples that we made. Um, turn the statistical crank, if you will, and got a number out that we used to design against. And that number was close enough. It was close enough to what, um, what that part needed. Um, an interesting thing I've learned along the way is that, you know, an individual part has many criteria that it's designed against. And um, in, in terms of a titanium airplane part, it's oftentimes durability and damage tolerance, which 3D printed titanium has that that's that's where it shines. So we were in pretty good shape um, property wise. What we failed to really forecast was the challenges in inspection. Um, you can't fly apart if you can't either have confidence that it has no flaws or inspect it such that you can find those critical flaws that that are going to cause problems. And parts that big, we, we, we weren't mature enough in our, in our inspectability methods. We still don't quite understand the effect of defects. Even if we could see a flaw, do we know what it's going to do and how it will perform? Um, and, and I guess finally, the, the, really the, the deal breaker was um, for those that understand or have been around 3D printed material, um, and if you know anything about metallurgy, you know the grain structure is really unusual and unique and it's it's oriented and it's columnar and it's got these weird features and that tends to have problems when it comes to traditional inspection methods it gets it, things get noisy really fast and you can't see as deep as you could through a normal conventional product form and so you know the the lesson learned was this this secondary operation which we weren't even thinking was going to be a problem actually was the problem. The, the data, the performance, the properties, the ability to make the parts and make them economically feasible, all of that shook out pretty well. It was inspectability that, that tripped us up. So big lesson learned there. And so at this time, since you were so early on, were you kind of working in tandem with the, the regulators or kind of the qualification body to kind of come up with some of these standards Seem, I mean, it was so new, right? Like it hadn't been done in, in many respects before. So how did that dynamic work? Yeah, that's a great question. And it, it, it was at one point, you know, you run up against this wall and you say, well, um, you know, the conventional way is to reference something out of MMPDS, which is the handbook of all, you know, uh, source data from a publicly available specification. And so if you, if you look in MMPDS, there's a methodology for how you determine these values, these minimum design values. Um, and it's statistical methods. It's a T90 or T99 value. Um, the problem is that when you look at how um, the definitions are assigned, what's a heat, what's a lot, um, how many samples do you have to take, orientation dependencies, None of that was spelled out then, and I don't even think it's spelled out now. I think MMPDS and other standards bodies have recognized we have to do we have to we have to write this down, and so they're in the process of writing this down. Back then, I kind of just threw a dart at the wall and started saying, "Well, this will constitute a lot, right? A lot is if I make five parts on the same base plate, but then I." cut each one of them off and heat treat them separately, are they still the same lot? And, you know, we didn't know, nobody really knew. So 
we, we kind of just made our own decision um, and we got it blessed by the internal materials and process people at Lockheed Martin. We got it blessed by the materials and process people in the, in the F-35 program office. And so we were all on the same page. We all agreed to the terminology. We all agreed how we were going to approach this, even though nobody had really formally documented this. Um, and, and we went off and, and, and pressed on. So we did, we did engage, you know, in, in the aviation side, um, the regulatory bodies flow that down, right? We, 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 we can't force things up. It's flowed down from on top. Um, interestingly, one of my biggest projects right now is, is working with ground vehicles um, in the Department of Defense. And in that case, there is way less top-down push from a regulatory agency because the criticality is less, right? It's part breaks, you tow something back to the shop as opposed to a $130 million airplane when something breaks, that's a really bad day. Um, so yeah, we, you kind of have to, depending on what, what um, market you're in, aviation and bio being the, the most stringent, um, you're going to get flow down from those regulatory bodies and you're going to have to work with them. And we're all still figuring that out right now as we go. So what was the timing for that entire project kind of from when it kind of kicked off to, Hey, we've got something qualified, signed off, ready to kind of put on an airplane. Yeah. It's the, the qualification part was um, I, I left right towards the end of it to take a job at NASA. Um, and it was probably close to three years start to finish to do that. And um you know, I, I won't share the, the cost of it because I sure. probably shouldn't, but um, you can imagine, right? And so um, when you look at the time and the cost to do qualification on one part or, or one part family for one vehicle, um, that's where I became kind of a zealot, if you will, for doing qualification better or taking a different approach because not, I mean... F-35 can afford that time and cost, but most other programs cannot. So, And so kind of after Lockheed, it sounds like NASA was the next step. You want to continue the, the career, career trajectory? Yeah. So um, it was time for a change after about almost 11 years at Lockheed Martin. And I had a, a, a fun opportunity to go out to the East Coast and work for NASA. Um, really didn't interrupt things that I was doing. Uh, they had a, a Siaki machine um, at that facility. Um, I was already kind of an expert in that, in that particular brand of additive, ha having been um, working on it for by then a, a decade um, and, and going through an, a, a qualification program in F-35. So at NASA, I had a little bit more, I, kind of step back into the more research and development role, as opposed to when I left Lockheed Aeronautics, I was, um, you know, less R&D and more implementation. I was at that kind of maturity level where I'm ready to hand it off to the materials and process people, and then they push it on to the, to the platform. At NASA, I got to take a step back and, and go back kind of to my, you know, my, my original passion, which is, is the, the material behaviors, alloy development, um, fun things that you can do with additive that you can't with other techniques. We um, 
our, our Siaki machine that we had there had two independent wire feeders. So I built a, a stack nozzle where we could feed multiple wires, did some graded alloy work with that. Um, you know, we, we, my career has kind of always been, uh, I guess, skewed a little bit towards the large scale DED side of things, but I was also working in other, other techniques as well. Um, powder bed, um, arc based. We did some arc based way back in the early days at Lockheed Martin. I continued some of that, um, at NASA as well. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a fun shift into uh, a different area, still in aerospace. Um, we, we tried to push parts into the last shuttle mission, um, was going up to retrieve, uh, on the way back, they were going to retrieve a, a broken ammonia pump off of the international space station. And, um, they had this big, it looked like a big socket wrench, but it was like three feet long. And they needed this to, to extract this ammonia pump and stow it into the space shuttle cargo bay. And we did, we did a lot of work to try and get that, um, the little socket end that we were going to e-beam DED fabricate out of um, aluminum. We tested it and we, we uh, proof tested it and we broke it and we examined it and thought we had uh, a chance to get something flown. And um, that was when I learned, you know, the difference between manned space flight and unmanned space flight. And it's a, you know, the, the regulation and the, the safety aspects are at least an order of magnitude, if not higher. And so unproven technology, even though it was a low kind of low hanging fruit and, and low burden, um, it never got to fly. But, um, you know, we uh, we were we were making progress and, and um, keep, keep pushing on on the technology. And, you know, now we've got parts uh, on Mars. We've got parts orbiting Jupiter. I say we collective we the the the, the industry working in additive. Um, so it's getting out there. It's, it's, it's fun. And I suppose NASA too has a little bit different mission than a Lockheed or the F-35 program where a lot of the work that you do is, is for the shuttle or, or for one of the, the, the vehicles or a program. But um, part of that work, I imagine, can be shared more publicly in terms of helping the industry as a whole move whether it's increased qualification time or decreased qualification time or insight on new materials or, um, or methods as well. Yeah, it was um, certainly working inside of a, a big corporate entity. You, you run into um, sharing and openness issues um, working for the government. It was, you know, I, I, well, you're required when you when you receive funding from the government through a, a lab like that to publish your work and be open about what you're doing. So it was it was a nice change, and it was, um, you know, it felt like I was having more of a uh, more of a contribution than just outside, you know, as opposed to just that one company. Um, and in fact, I had one of my frustrations, kind of when I was at Lockheed viewing the. The, the government agency landscape was that there wasn't enough talking and sharing amongst the government players. And so while I was there, I created a, uh, we called it the government only working group on additive manufacturing. And so you, 
the only people invited to the table were civil servants or, you know, representatives, contractors of, of government federal facilities. And so it gave us the opportunity to try and, you know, share and collaborate and, and know what this agency was funding and what this agency was funding. And if there were ways we could, we could collaborate. And um, I know that, uh, you know, I was at NASA for five years. And once I left, I think it kind of dissolved. I don't know what, whatever happened to that, that organization, but I do know now that there's, there's so much going on in the additive world. It's, it's hard to keep up. And so um, I know the, the institutes like America makes have helped fill that void. So they're bringing everybody to the table and, and making sure that people are, or, or uh, knowledgeable about what's going on and what people need. Certainly, certainly. And so it was after kind of spending the time at NASA that you went transitioned into academia or was there another step in between that? There was another step in between there. So one of my, um, one of my buddies, Slade Gardner, um, he was working, he and I worked at Lockheed Arrow in Texas um, and, and went our separate ways uh, when I went to NASA. And then he was in, at Lockheed Space in Colorado. And so he had just um, secured a very large program internally funded by Lockheed um, to do additive in, in the spacecraft side of the house. And so he was desperately looking for people to help. Um, I was not necessarily looking to make a move, um, but I couldn't pass up the opportunity. And while I'd never really spent any time in Colorado. It was also kind of a, a bit of a pull. Uh, so I picked up the family and we came to Colorado. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we worked um, for a little while on that project as tends to happen with big corporate entities like, like Lockheed, things change quickly um, and without rhyme or reason sometimes. Um, so, uh, you know, shortly after I came, um, some of the funding got shuffled around, uh, Slade ended up starting his own company, uh, big metal additive. He's still here locally in the Colorado region. Um, I stuck it out for another, another close to two, a year and a half, two years. Um, but by then I was, um, I was collaborating quite closely with the folks, here at the School of Mines. So where I worked at Lockheed and where the School of Mines is about 20 minutes away. And so as an R&D person inside of a big corporation, we always look for opportunities to collaborate with, with academics. Um, and in particular, the academics here at, at Mines were really good to work with. Um, Aaron Stebner, who's, who, who was here at Mines and is, is now at Georgia Tech, um, he was my, my main connection and we, um, we, we formulated, uh, kind of this research center adapt Alliance for the development of additive processing technologies, which is, is, is the research center and industry consortium here at mines, um, getting involved in that while I was at Lockheed kind of, um, got me interested, um, then, Minds asked me to step in and, and, and teach an intro to additive course um, for a faculty member who was off doing some other things. And so I taught as an adjunct in the evening while I was still full-time at Lockheed Martin. Um, 
it had never crossed my mind to be a teacher or to be in academia, um, but I kind of liked it. I enjoyed, you know, engaging with students. The students here are top of the pile. They are all um, very, very sharp, and it's very exciting to be around them and their creativity and, um, you know, be part of transitioning that knowledge base onto to the next generation. So um, as things kind of got less and less favorable at Lockheed and I started getting stronger and stronger connections here at Mines. I thought it was kind of an obvious, an obvious leap. It didn't require me to move my family again. Um, and it got me the opportunity to do, um, do the teaching side, but also get into the research side where I'm not purely in aerospace, which had, had been my career up until that point. Um, so now, as I mentioned earlier, we're working problems on ground vehicles, trucks for the army, um, and, and, and I can have conversations and, and, and go after funding in, in bio, in other commercial products. Um, so it's, it's fun to get outside of that aerospace. I'll always, aerospace will always be my, you know, my go-to in, in terms of my expertise and my, my knowledge. Um, but it's fun to work other areas of additive because it's it's getting pretty exciting um, elsewhere. And also, you probably have a extensive network from all your time in, in both at NASA and at Lockheed, and with all the commercial companies that you worked for. On the flip side, now kind of as an academic, like you can kind of leverage some of those connections to do bigger projects as well. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I one of the key things I tell my students is your network will define your career path. Um, rarely do you apply to an online posting and get a job. You, you know people, you know what they're doing, you, they know you and when they need you or when people need um, employees, that's, that's how you, you find uh, connections. That's how you find uh, projects that you can work on together. So yeah, it's, it's through my various jobs, um, I've gotten to know a lot of people in a lot of different places and um, it's led to a lot of fruitful collaborations and, um, you know, just, just fun engagement. So, so that's good. And so nowadays, like, as you, you know, from the professor side, what are you seeing in terms of trends from students kind of you interact with as it relates to additive or people kind of, uh, pursuing metallurgy, like knowing that they want to go into additive or work in space or aerospace, like what's kind of, what's the general pattern that you're seeing now with the, I would say a little bit higher visibility of, of added manufacturing 3d printing than it was certainly five, 10 years ago. Yeah. I, I, I would say the, the most visible change. And I guess the, the first time I taught as an adjunct was five years ago. Um, and I always start my first class with, you know, how many of you have had experience? Either I've got a 3D printer at home or my roommate has one or I've used one at my internship. And the first time I taught, maybe one or two people raised their hands. And now when I ask that question, the majority of the room raised their hands. Everybody has interacted with it, whether it's, you know, now every... Um, it's not just the labs that I or my colleagues that are kind of dedicated to additive have, but like every, every professor has one in their lab just for making, you know, little brackets or something for an experiment. Um, so everybody 
has gotten exposure to it and it's kind of changed. Um, well, it's changed things a lot. So it speeds up that learning curve to get people comfortable. Um, the, the flip side to that is that I feel like I spend a lot of time unteaching what students have taught themselves or think that they know based on the, um, you know, perception in the, in the, in the broader media, right? So no, it's not going to change. It's not going to do away with every other form of fabrication. No, not everything is going to be 3D printed in the future. Um, it's another tool in the toolbox. It's got advantages and disadvantages. Know when to use one versus the other. Um, so I feel like I'm I'm, I'm less having to teach them about what it can do and teach them more about what it can't do. Don't forget there's other methods out there. If you have to make a hundred thousand of something, um, injection molding is probably better than your extrusion printer. So um, yeah, the, the, the perception has changed as it's become more popular and people are paying more attention to it. And this is a combination of both uh, undergraduate and graduate programs, opportunities, kind of research for uh, at, at Minds as it relates to, to additive? Yeah, the, the, the program that I run is specifically a graduate non-thesis program um, plus a certificate. And, and we're pushing both of those online. The, the non-thesis master's degree will be fully online in the fall, uh, fall of 2022. Um, but we do engage with undergrads as well, even though um, it's not formally part of a degree program. Um, I'm sponsoring a senior design team this semester that's building a chocolate 3D printer, which is pretty exciting. I'm, I've been promised that the review this week, there will be samples, there will be chocolate to be eaten. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. Just in time um, for Valentine's Day, right? That's right. That's right. Um, I have a, another undergraduate student who we have kind of special programs where students can apply and then get kind of uh, paired up with a, a professor and then, you know, given some funding and some resources to go do some, some laboratory work. And so I'm working with a student now to do um, some proof of concept. He's a, he's a freshman and he's phenomenal um, and, and do some, some demonstration work in cold spray. And so um, I enjoy the opportunities to work with the younger crew because um, you know, the earlier they can get excited, the more, fantastic their ideas will be when they get to me in, in graduate school. Um, we just wrapped up a, a competition. We did a competition that's, it was supposed to be last semester. We delayed the, the final judging into January because of COVID. Um, but one of the teams, we had three teams competing and they were all tasked with designing a, a risk mounted scoop for astronauts to use so that when they're walking around and they want to sample the, the soil, they, they can just put their little scoop down and sample it. Um, we didn't tell them to use 3D printing, but of course, everybody gravitates towards that because they have to make a demonstration prototype. And um, yeah, one of the groups was a group of freshmen and they did phenomenal. And um, so it's going to be exciting to see how they progress uh, over the course of their, their career here at Mines. But um yeah, the, the, the way students are approaching and using additive um, at, the, at the early stages of their academic career is, is impressive. So it's, it bodes well for our future, I think. And do you see the industry pull as well? Like are, are students getting 
hired into jobs related to additive? They are. There's um, my perception is that there's way more need out there than there is um, people to fill them. I think that's more true at the higher level of experience, um, but certainly entry level students. Um, you know, I do try to set a reasonable expectation that you're not going to necessarily go out and work exclusively with additive. You may be working in an area where you incorporate that into your, your design or your process flows. But, you know, we've one of, I think the, the very first graduate out of our master's program, she um, went straight to Blue Origin working uh, 3D printed rocket engines. So um, we've got people, big and small companies. Um, we've sent two students over to Slade at Big Metal Additive. Um, and it's, you know, it's fun to see them go straight into an additive centric um, uh, job and just excel at it. So, um, so that's fun. Yeah. Just two questions left for you. So the first one is kind of, um, kind of, as you reflect on the conversation day and kind of your career in general, kind of what, what's exciting you kind of in the next kind of six months to a year, what, what's on your radar in terms of kind of things that you're excited about, either industry related kind of personal kind of research and work that you're doing? Yeah. So one of the, um, one of the, the big benefits of academia is that with appropriate notice and blessing, I can, I can do some things on the side. Um, and I'm, you know, encouraged to do that as a faculty member because, um, you know, the students get to see that. And, and, and so, demonstrating that we can not just be instructors, but that we can apply what we've learned and what we're doing externally is, is, is encouraged. And so I've got, um, I started a couple of different companies, um, one by myself, um, making consumer products. Um, I call it Tessellation Studio, which those in the business recognize those outside the business. I have to explain it to them. Um, I also secured the, the domain builtwithtriangles.com because I think people can remember that. Um, people can't always spell tessellation, including myself, um, but builtwithtriangles.com. Uh, so so that's, that's where uh, I'll, I'll send people. But my first product is, um, is a slim wallet that's 3D printed out of titanium. Um, it, was an, it was really an interesting project because part of it was educational for me as an instructor because I've bought a I've 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 worked a lot and I've bought services from companies, but never with the mindset of that I'm going to resell this and try to make money with it, right? And so one of the um, kind of you know things that I have to unteach my students, as I said, is is the cost factor. I mean, it's it's oftentimes well way more expensive, and uh, I got to learn that firsthand by trying to make this this slim uh, slim wallet that's got a titanium front to it. Um, but I did find a company that could produce it and produce it um, where I could make money. And so I'm in the process of having all the bits and pieces made. I'm not doing any of the, the, the work myself. I'll just do final assembly and, and package and sell them. And those, uh, my online store should be open um, next month. Um, so that's kind of my, my exciting thing that's happening. One of my exciting things that's happening on the side um, and the other one is a, a company I formed with a partner um, 
looking more at the, the, the mobile fabrication aspects. Um, and this isn't exclusive to 3D printing. This spans all sorts of fabrication methodologies. But um, um, we're, we're working with a customer that has, our first customer has, has needs in a remote area and, and heavy equipment that's breaking all the time. And so additive is a nice solution um, as opposed to spares in a warehouse on the other side of the planet that have to be shipped through, um, you know, supply chains that we've found out are quite fragile here recently. So um, looking to apply additive and other fabrication techniques into um, more of a, a, a mobile fabrication methodology. So um, we're, we're, we've got some funded work there and we're trying to stir up some other work and, uh, yeah, that'll be fun. It'll be fun to see where that goes. Um, so yeah, lots of, uh, lots of things on the horizon here for me. That's awesome. So certainly a lot to keep you busy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't lack for things to do. Awesome. So last final and, and kind of final question before we wrap up. So you've shared a, a, a few pieces of, of advice that you share with your students, kind of leverage your network, but anything else? I mean, as, as someone that may be outside the industry or trying to reskill, upskill, kind of thinking about added manufacturing and, and how they can kind of better themselves or kind of get different types of, of knowledge to be successful in, in the industry, like yourself, kind of what, what piece of advice would, might you share? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, you know, I, when I, when I teach my introduction to additive course, I, I make sure to point out, we call it additive manufacturing, not 3d printing because the 3d printing is just one step in the manufacturing flow. Um, so from the context of additive manufacturing, there's a lot of steps, right? There's formulation, there's CAD, there's finite element analysis. If you're doing that sort of thing, um, and then there's all these downstream things of, of how do you uh, finish it? How do you post-process it? How do you do things like that? So um, I, I guess my, maybe my, my advice would be um, don't overlook those other things, right? Because I have students who come to me and say, oh, I bought a 3D, you know, one, one of the common refrains was, well, everybody's going to own a, a 3D printer, just like everybody owns a personal computer. And my hesitation with that is you still have to be able to create parts. Now you can go download things for free off of Thingiverse or wherever. Um, but if you're wanting to use this in a creative sense, you still have to have that creative spark and you have to be able to take that creative spark and turn it into a 3D model that you can represent in an appropriate file and load into a 3D printer. And not only that, but know how to put it on the build plate, how to orient it, um, how likely it is to fail based on its geometry, all of these things you learn over time. Um, but I would say, you know, the, the, the advice for those out there that see this as their career path or, or want to change career paths is um, that the pushing the button on the 3D printer is just one piece of it, right? So skills and, and, and CAD and skills and simulation um, those things are pretty easy to come by, right? I, I taught myself CAD, a couple of different packages, and you can find YouTube videos to tell you everything you need to know. So filling the void and those skills that are the precursor that everybody tends to jump over and think that you just, uh, you know, take a thumb drive, put it in the machine and press go. Um, there is 
resources out there to help you with that, all those other things that make it manufacturing, not just 3D printing. And if you can grasp that and you can have skills in that area, now you become valuable to somebody who wants to operate or wants you to operate or come in and help with their operation using 3D printers because you know the pieces that go into making that successful. Yeah, no, that's certainly great advice. And I think um, certainly something that uh, folks listening can, can, can take with them and, and, and apply. So Craig, I appreciate the, the time today. Uh, excited to see kind of uh, everything you're working on, everything you're building, all the different companies and, and the work you're doing at, at Mind. So thanks again for, for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.